Hi, this is Peter Francho, your state comptroller in Maryland. You're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. And welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson with a very special guest today, the Daily Records government reporter, Brian Sears. And today we're going to get into Brian's role in Maryland politics. Brian has also covered the local government beat. Of course, that's the good stuff. That's what we're interested in. And then we'll get into how social media is influencing journalism and the positives and the negatives that come along with that. We'll also look ahead to the 2022 session and get Brian's perspective. Brian Sears, thank you so much for joining us. This has been on our bucket list to get you on here. And I know Michael's looking forward to it as much as I am. Thank you. Your uh, your interest sounds so much better than my wife allows me to believe I am around the house. <laughs> I like it. Well, I'm I, I'm excited to have you on, Brian, in, in part because I'm a regular reader of your work, including going back to your your previous gig when you were kind of on the on the local beat, but I think this is an opportunity to talk about a topic that is of broader interest uh, to the kind of people who would listen to this podcast, that sort of media coverage of state level politics is sort of in flux. And we are, we're all stakeholders in that. So I think it's a really timely topic. So thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. So Brian, along those lines, and I think, you know, what Michael's talking about is, I mean, you've become a staple in Annapolis and you're pretty well known for covering legislative hearings or the big news around town and really just doing it through your iPhone and maybe a microphone. And so you don't need necessarily the news van to be parked out front. And I think that's that's really a sign of the times in terms of how journalism is changing. Give us your perspectives. I mean, you've been around for a long time. Just, you know, how things have changed. And when we were in the 20 and 21 session with the COVID restrictions, you and your colleagues played a massive role in keeping information flowing, particularly when there were technology challenges. So, I mean, I'd like to hear about that. But just overall, what is your take on how the advent of social media and the iPhone has really changed the way that you cover the big issues in Annapolis and around the state? Oh, look, I mean, I, you know, I, I always tell people that, you know, my office is now my backpack. Um, and, and I sort of liken it to, if you remember the old Saturday Night Live skit with Al Franken, where they sent him out to cover Desert Storm. And he's standing there in the middle of the desert with his camera and his microphone, and he's got a big satellite dish on his head. And, um, and we've, we've, we've replaced the satellite dish with an iPhone and, uh, and, and a wireless hotspot. And, you know, with that and a camera, and a little gadget that lets me upload photos straight from my my digital DSLR. I mean, really, like everything I need is is in probably a backpack uh, the, the size of something uh, most of us send our kids to school with. The iPhone has been a game changer. I mean, when I got my first, I got my first iPhone when they first came off the line, and it didn't do anything close to this. Although I was shooting video and editing video on my laptop for for small packages and uploading it uh, to social media. Now, you know, we've been, we can live stream. I've been live streaming um, the governor's press conferences since Larry Hogan was sworn in in 2015. And in fact, you know, his staff kind of came over when I did the first one and was kind of like, I remember Hannah Mark coming over to me and was kind of like, so what are you doing? 
And, you know, and the next press conference, she had a setup and she was shooting it on an iPhone and she kind of laughed and said, you know, uh, we're going to steal your audience. And I looked at her and I said, yeah, but, you know, so you'll have bigger, bigger numbers, but people who want to see the question and answer after the governor's announcement are going to watch my live stream because the <laughs> governor, the governor was cutting off like, and, and by the way, it's a savvy move. The governor was cutting off the live stream feed right after he finished doing the presentation of whatever it was he was doing a presentation on. Um, and so the question and answer where things get really interesting was often lost, except to those of us who, you know, who were there kind of live streaming those things. And I guess that gets to the importance of an independent press as a player um, trying to cover issues of public concern. And there, there is a difference. I, I mean, I'm, I'm saying this as, as a, you know, part of the staff of an organization whose members are government leaders themselves, and, and surely many of our counties have a press office or, uh, you know, the, an, an outward-facing entity like that, but still there is a difference between, you know, watching the feed from the elected official and getting the coverage from someone who's in the audience delivering on behalf of the public, so to speak. I, I think that's it's a fair part of the process. Yeah. And, and, and Mike, one of the things that I really love, um, and, and I will tell you, like, I think most things are neither all good or all bad. Um, I think there's a lot to love about social media. I think there's a lot of things that I wish were better about social media. Um, but one of the things that I love about social media and, and the things that I'm able to do with it is the fact that I'm able to leverage that and actually show people, you know, I'm big on source documents. Um, and, and so, you know, like anytime there's a question about coverage, I can always refer people back and go, okay, like if you thought my article was skewed, go back and look at the, go back and look at the conference, the press conference that I covered and tell me where I got it wrong. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, it resolves a lot. It resolves a lot of questions in my mind and people can go back and look at the source at the source records. And, and, and I think it does give people a different perspective on, um, what reporters do. I agree with you. And, and Brian, I've known you for a while. I know you're a nerd like like Michael and myself are. So I want to hear about, you know, the difference between covering the local government beat and maybe those aren't the sexiest issues and maybe they're not the front page issues, but they're the most interesting. I, I think you'd agree. Talk about the, the, the difference between the local government beat and being at the state house and which one do which one do you like better if I can put you on the spot? Yeah. Um, so I covered local government. I, for those who don't know, I covered Baltimore County government for probably the better part of a decade. Um, and, and I'll be honest with you, the, the, the covering local government, there is nothing, I, I think, more important to readers than that. I mean, local government really is day in and day out, probably having the most effect on the, where, whatever county, uh, whatever jurisdiction you live in, like local government has more effect on your day-to-day -day life than, than a lot of times state government does. The legislature is there for 90 days. The governor is there for four years. And all of the things that they do are very important, but local issues are really tremendously interesting. Um, even sometimes the things that, you know, like getting bogged down in zoning issues and things like that, they, th there are real stories there that affect real people. Um, much more so sometimes than, than a lot of the, uh, the, the high level policy arguments that get had in the state house. I love doing both. Um, but I will, but I will tell you, um, in my heart of hearts, I loved covering local government. I, I think it's one of those things that as we have seen a contraction in the industry, um, in my industry, 
that we don't really see the um, the coverage of local government. I mean, think about places like Montgomery County or even my home county of Baltimore County, where I, I was born and grew up. Um, you know, there's nobody back in Baltimore County that really is doing the kinds of things that were getting done when um, the sun had a larger presence, when I, you know, when I was there covering county government. I mean, it, you know, and it's the loss to the reader. I, I mean, we've, we've used that phrase already a couple of times. It's, it's the sign of the times. And I guess media generally, we think of newspapers as the, the centerpiece institution for large you know, for, for cities and metro areas that it's the big newspaper is sort of the driver, is the community forum for people knowing about stuff and people learning about policy and politics. But but also it's, it's it, you know, for a long time, it was the newsprint based town square for exchanges of ideas and, 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 and for providing accountability for political leaders. And that now feels like it's for many of the larger papers it feels like an ancillary mission or basically it's dropped off uh, their commitment to a larger community i i feel like we're in the middle of a transition and i don't know who steps into that role is there a true vacuum there and can you can you make money doing that kind of stuff on behalf of a public um, you know, I do think there's a, I do think that there's a vacuum there, and I do believe that nature abhors a vacuum. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I think we've seen, we're seeing a constant evolution. I mean, but you're seeing the nonprofit model here in Maryland, like the, 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 the great work that the people at Maryland Matters do, and, and I really do mean that. I have, uh, I have a lot of friends who, uh, very good journalists who I respect very much, who do great work at Maryland Matters. And, and they have a very different, a very different model. And, and I'm, I'm sitting here crossing my fingers and toes and my eyes and, and everything else, hoping like that is a model that catches on. I also agree with uh, David Simon, the former Baltimore Sun reporter. I do not believe that journalism will be saved by a thousand points of blogger light. Um, I think there's some very good bloggers out there, and I think there are some that are not so good. And and reporting, it tends to be a full-time job. It's really hard to do it on a part-time level and do it well. Um, and if you're going to do it on a full-time level, you need to find a way to monetize it a little bit. Um, you know, I, I think I, I think that that's a, that's a component that my industry is still is still struggling with mightily is how to monetize this at a scale that allows us to do all of that good work um, in, an, in the age of the internet where advertising inventory is so large that, you know, it's, it's, dirt, it's, it's less than, it's probably not even, not even dirt cheap. It's probably much less valuable than that. Right. And I, I guess to, to tie a couple things that we've mentioned together here, you've already, you've already made mention of your, your standards and reliance on sources and so forth that, you're a journalist and you're serious about this and you take your responsibility and duty seriously. And I think the same goes, you mentioned Maryland Matters. I think the staff for the Maryland Reporter, um, the, the, the folks who are around Annapolis and doing this kind of work professionally or semi-professionally, um, there's a standard there. But we're, it's fair to acknowledge that the the universe of people who have a platform to write about things, including state level policy and politics is way broader than it used to be. You can, you can put together a website tonight and start becoming a blogger on this and the content there can be inconsistent. So 
So now we're at the spot where everybody theoretically can be a, a journalist and, and, and open up a forum, right? You can open up a website and now let's hear the comments and let's hear what everybody has to say about this. You, you end up with a special flavor of maybe lower standard uh, writing and coverage, but also sometimes deliberately provocative writing. That's part of this larger social universe for, for news and information. It's, it's a weird new dynamic in covering this kind of, uh, this kind of stuff, right? Very much so. And, and that's why it really becomes incumbent upon people. And I tell people all the time on my Facebook page, um, it's, you know, each of us on social media is a trusted news source for the people who follow us, for our friends, for our family, for the people who are paying attention or so to what our social media, however big that feed is. And so when, when we as individuals go to post something, God, I'm just going to preach here. Um, I, I swear to God, this, is my, this might be my Baptist coming out in me. I, I really do think it's incumbent that that we that everybody sort of take a critical view of what you're posting and and ask the question you know are, you know are you posting something that is you know that is legitimate and truthful and accurate um, before you put it out there because after you after you hit send after you hit post um, and the people start sharing it it is it is like taking a pillow and ripping it open and letting the wind scatter all of those feathers and then trying to run around in the middle of that windstorm and collect all those feathers back again. You just can't do it. Um, and, and so each of us in social media, I think, has a responsibility to remember that we are a trusted news source for someone else. And when we post something, people out there that are our friends and family are taking us seriously because they take, you know, and, and taking those posts seriously because they take us seriously. Preach, preach, brother. I'm putting my soapbox away now. No, keep it out, because all of this sort of ties together with, you know, you're talking about the need for this industry to come up with a revenue model. And we know that clicks equal cash, right? And so you have all these folks who now are just trying to write that headline, right? They're trying to write the provocative headline that's going to result in the click. And maybe once you click that link, there's not much content there, but you got they got you to click the link, right? Clickbait. So there's so much of that out there now, Brian. And you and your colleagues, you know, your, your reputable journalists are sort of, I feel like in a weird spot where you're doing the work, you're doing the homework, but you're having to compete and deal with a lot of this quote unquote fake news, right? And people just writing headlines to get clicks. I mean, that's got to be frustrating. And how does that affect, you know, the work that you do and, and trying to reel that stuff back in? Because I imagine that people read those clickbait headlines and then they may come to your page and maybe comment on something you did and say, well, that's not how I read the other article, and that's not true. And what you're saying isn't true. Now you're fake news. Like, how do you combat that, and how big of a problem is it? To answer your last question first, I think it's uh, it's a sizable problem. How do you combat it? I mean, look, I don't know that I don't know that I have. Uh, I, I, God, I wish I had the you know the Harry Potter wand that I could make that better. Um, I mean, I think every day, day in and day out, journalists who are down there doing the work just keep going down there and doing the best work we can do and keep trying to point out to people, you know, for example, in social media, you know, I will, you know, I will point out to people when they have made a comment that is completely inaccurate. There are times where I've had to delete comments because the comments were so wildly inaccurate that there was no way I was going to allow someone to use my platform um, to, to, to kind of recycle that because it, it felt like I was giving sort of my seal of approval by allowing it to be on there. Um, and I really try very hard to not silence 
um, to, to not silence a lot of voices. I mean, if you look at my at my Facebook page, um, I mean, Kevin, you, you, you know that I have people from a wide, all across the political spectrum. And as long as everybody kind of behaves themselves and is respectful and, and, and is not sort of throwing poo at each other, you know, I'm willing to give everybody a wide latitude to kind of have a, you know, have a free ranging discussion. Um, but, you know, but you do have to set some responsible limits. And some of that is um, not allowing people to just say things that are demonstrably false that go un- either unchallenged or just allowed to stand um, and, and be and be repeated. But, but but embedded in that, though, is that now you have to sort of become a moderator for your own post. And that has to take time reading through all the comments and deciding which comments go too far and, and who's there just throwing bombs and just complete misinformation and then having to decide ethically whether or not to delete those comments. So that has to take up a chunk of time as sort of babysitting, you know, your social media feeds and again, sort of moderating the conversation that's taking place on your social media page. It takes up a tremendous amount of time. And I will tell you, I have my, as part of my workflow, I have my my social media accounts set up so that every comment that goes to them pings my cell phone. And I can, and I can promise you at some point, I do read them all. I have gotten to the point where there are some names um, that jump out more than others that, that I tend to read quicker um, because they have over the, over the years developed a reputation um, of, of sometimes starting fights with other people or, or whatever. And I, and I go and I look at those very quickly just to make sure, you know, because I, I want to try to head off a flame war um, before it gets started. You know, like it's, it's much easier. It's much easier to put it out when you can step on it than to try and get, you know, to try and go in there with a, you know, with a, with a fire hose and put it out later once it's become a three alarm fire. And, and so, yeah, it takes up a tremendous amount of my time and I'm constant and I'm constantly doing it. And, and, and sometimes it's irritating because it really is not a part of the job that I get paid for. Like if you asked my editor, he would tell you, like, they don't pay me to moderate my Facebook page. Um, but it does, but it does come with the job. But I, I assume that part of that is even, even more challenging than you're describing sort of as a, as a, as a component of your time and you see it as part of your responsibility, but your name is attached to so many things that are in the public forum now. You know, you've got a Facebook page that people go to and then they they start following and that, that sort of thing. So I'm sure you end up with folks who are angry about what you wrote. Not not just, you know, they disagree, but they come for you, right? You know, you're I, I disagree with you and you're a bad person. Is that that has to be part of the territory now, doesn't it? Um, yeah, and it's been, and I'll be honest with you, it's been more recent in the last couple of years, and especially during the pandemic. And I think, you know, uh, I, I will, I will attribute some of this to the stress that I think we've all been under and all felt at times during the last year, because this has all been a, a challenging time that we have, you know, something that none of us have ever really had to go through. But you know, for example, one really good example, um, I'll give you two. First of all, before we joined this podcast this morning. Um, I got an email. It was a group email to people in my newsroom, um, and the first line of the email said, "Just a reminder, you're all scum." Um, I, I'll be honest with you; like, you know, it's it's it used to be not often that I got those kind of messages. 
um, during the height of the pandemic and even a little bit before that, I was doing a lot of daily analysis um, of COVID numbers because I write a lot about COVID. And so I was doing, um, if you think about it as like, uh, when I go to ball games, I keep score because it keeps my head in the game. And so doing the daily analysis really helped me sort of understand day to day you know, when I would look at a number, I'd be like, oh, well, that's not good. Like, this is the sixth day we've seen that number or or a number as bad as this number. Mm. Um, you know, here's here's why you shouldn't take this one too seriously, because all these other lines are trending down or trending up. Like, you know, and, and, and so I started writing a daily analysis that I think was getting a lot of traction. And, and I judge it's based on on people sharing it. But what started happening was I started getting a lot of private messages from people who were very angry with me for posting it and mm. that it was somehow representative of a bias. I mean, even though I would argue that all of this stuff was really just, you know, Joe Friday, just the facts, here's the numbers and, and, and what they mean compared to where we've been, where we're going, that kind of thing. Um, and it got to, none of it was anything that I would call sort of actionable but would would sort of de- describe it as borderline threatening um mm. and very and, and absolutely angry and you know it got to the point where like i i started backing away from doing some of the daily analysis because it just every day it was like that and and and, and i and it and it kind of wore on me um you know and and i have so many other like really nice things going on in my life besides and i love my job i i i don't know what i would do if i weren't in journalism but you know like my wife and i just had twin boys and like i have so many like really nice things going on that i just found that it was like it was making me feel too bad too long it was getting harder to shake um i've started wandering back in because i really have come back around to the conclusion that like i this is part of the job and i need to do it but i'm trying to be a little more judicious about it um, and, and really sort of hit things when they, when they need to be hit. And, and, you know, but it's, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird time. Like I never used to get these messages before. I think that speaks too to, I mean, look uh, again, the changing landscape now as a journalist, I mean, these one-way conversations are turning into two-way conversations and you can now have real-time conversations with your audience. And unfortunately that can devolve into what you were just talking about these borderline threatening messages and people that are just angry, but someone can just send you a direct message and say, hey, can you tell me more about this part of your article? Or I'm interested in that, or I have questions about that. And you can respond in real time. I mean, I guess all in all, when all things are considered, do you think that the ability to have that real-time conversation with your audience, do the positives outweigh the negatives in terms of that real-time interaction with your audience? Uh, you know, I think they do. And I'll tell you, I mean, that's a, I wanted to bring this back around to a positive because I do think we we talked a lot about the negatives, but, but, you know, I, I do love the conversations that get had. And, you know, I, I love it when, when people ask honest questions, there are some people that ask a question that literally it's the doorway into having an argument and that's, and that's the setup, but there are other, there are lots and lots of folks who are asking really good, honest questions. Um, the other thing that I like, I don't always get time to sort of monitor the comments in real time when I'm doing a live stream of the governor's press conference, but every now and again, I get a chance to kind of like sneak a peek while I'm taking notes and taking pictures and, and doing like, you know, like 90 other things. Um, and every now and again, somebody will post in there like, Hey, could you ask this? And I look at that and go, you know what? That's a really quite really good question. And I didn't realize that somebody out there thought that was important. And I have on occasion asked those questions um, because, you know, because they are 
you know, they are good questions and it does give me some insight into the kinds of things that the, the, the public is interested in. And in the end, like, you know, like I want to be able to answer those questions and, 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 I, and I don't claim to sort of have the, uh, the ability to see inside the hearts and minds of everybody out there and know what they want. So, you know, when you get that, when you get those moments where somebody sends you a question, you're like, Oh, yeah, we're going to ask that. Like I had three other things I wanted to ask, but I'm going to ask this one because that's a really great question. I didn't think of (laughs) that. That interaction is, is interesting. And, you know, we've, we've spent a lot of time, we jumped pretty quickly to your role as a social media figure and a person who's thinking about news coverage in a maybe a different way than than folks did 15 or 30 years ago. But I, I don't want it to go you know unsaid. You contribute an awful lot of column inches in genuine written material for the Daily Record. So you know, the, the subscribers and readers for the Daily Record uh, get your insights in the conventional old school form as well. You'll write, you know, a, a great deal of coverage about w- whether it's, the, you know, the, the COVID stuff or whether it's the latest press event or here's a bill hearing that was interesting or that kind of stuff around Annapolis. Um, I, I commend that coverage to our listeners because I think it's, it's among the, the, the best stuff that's in, in the Annapolis scene. Um, I, I'm interested in one particular take that, that is the Daily Record is different than some other media, that it is a principally a paywalled source. And so a lot of your writing is really good, in my judgment, and it's of really broad interest but there's only a certain fraction of people around town who possess a subscription to the Daily Record to be able to read all of it other than just, you know, the teaser two sentences and click here to subscribe. Do you, do you feel like that's, I mean, I know it's, I mean, again, it's a sign of the times. Uh, do you feel like that's a, a bit of a, you know, a, a two, two-sided conversation, a, a tough thing? Yeah, I mean, look, I, it, it's one of those things that I do struggle with because I worked for a lot of publications that were not, that did not have a paywall. Um, the Daily Record has one, and this is part of their business model. And and you know, there's a part of me that's sort of you know, the, here's the here's the struggle for me uh, for for me, Mike. I, I want to to have as many people read things as possible. I mean, when you know, we we break stories at the Daily Record just like a lot of other news organizations. And and so when I'm breaking a story, when Steve Lash is breaking a story about the court system, you know, when when my colleagues are breaking stories, like I want as many people to see those as possible, um, because we do good we do good work. And I joke all the time, you know, the, the the Daily Record is a small newsroom, but it really is sort of a mighty newsroom with you know filled with people who do very good hard work. Um, and it's been one of the nicest places I've ever worked at. And I'm not just saying that because they, uh, you know, because they write my check. It's really been a joy to work there. And I, and I love everyone that I work with. And I want everybody to read the good copy that we're, that we're generating. Um, that being said, I also know that like doing the good work that we do costs money. And my employer has a, a right to find a way to monetize that, to pay us so that we can continue to do that good work. Um, and therein lies sort of the, the balance and, and the callback that, you know, to, to the earlier part of this discussion about finding ways to monetize this. And, and I think, I think it's, you know, this is one of a number of things that, that publications are looking at to try and figure it out and, and what that balance is. And is there a metered paywall? Um, I, I mean, look, I, I think, you know, we're all sort of struggling to figure out 
still how to make this all work in the age of, uh, and, and I say this with tongue and planted in cheek, in the age of Al Gore's internet. Um, you know, we, we're, we're, we're still trying, you know, we're still working that out a little bit. But in the end, like, I still have a hard time imagining a day where we don't have professional organizations paying professional reporters to do professional work. I still think that, I still think that survives. I just don't think any of us have an idea of looking forward, like what that's going to look like 20 years from now. Seems like a good spot to plug that everyone should subscribe to your local paper and to publications like the Daily Record because this work is extremely important and everyone is struggling to figure out how to make it work. And in an age of so much fake news and so much misinformation, it's really important that, that we can go and rely on certain publications and certain journalists to provide real-time good information, actionable information that you, can, that you can rely on and count on. So please go and subscribe to your local papers. It, it's really important stuff. So, so Brian, I think it's interesting. And I know for you, I'm sure there's this, there's this internal struggle with, well, I want to make sure, like you said, as many people can read my stuff. But if people can't afford it, you know, that, that maybe puts them at a disadvantage. So I know that there's that, that internal strife that, that you and your colleagues deal with of trying to make sure people have access, but then also, you know, having to keep the doors open and the lights on in the newsroom. Again, all really legitimate concerns, and I think very comparable to what you see sort of happening in the shakeout between cable, uh, the battle between cable and streaming services. You know, everybody thinks that cutting the cord is a really good idea. Um, but you, you soon get to a point where like, if you are, if you are going a la carte and buying all of the streaming services that sort of bring you back the content that you really liked on cable, um, you know, I started to price it out. Like we were starting to get very close to, to what our cable bill looked like. And that didn't even include the fact that our cable provider, um, who's also our internet provider was going to increase the cost of our internet because we weren't bundling, um, we weren't bundling cable anymore. And so in the end, you know, the, the question becomes how many subscriptions to, uh, to newspapers can one person uh, handle? You know, uh, if you have the daily record, I pay for, you know, I pay for the Baltimore Sun. I send Maryland Matters a check. Um, I, uh, you know, I pay for the New York Times and the Washington Post. You know, pretty soon you're starting to get a little tapped out. Like, um, and my wife, who's a former journalist, like I, I, I realized that like, you know, there's probably a limit to uh, to the you know the discussion in the family finance committee of, about how many uh, how many newspapers she'll let me subscribe to you know before before that becomes a real problem that that you know consider sending me to newspaper rehab for. So um, yeah, I mean, look, I think these are all very real very real concerns and questions that that all people who are a lot smarter than me um, are trying very hard to figure out. So maybe. You know, your, Brian, your, your mention of being plugged in and following all these news sources, maybe that's a, a transition to, to sort of looking ahead to what we all have ahead of us on the state level policy scene. And um, maybe, maybe a place to start that is you know, what do we think the legislative session ahead might look like from the eyes of a journalist? I guess I'm interested in your take. I mean, we're all pacing the floors about whether this is going to be an in-person session or whether some sort of, you know, some sort of more, uh, you know, COVID concerned event like the, the 21 session was. Do you have any takes on that? The Just in general, the way we've been through the last year or two as a journalist, keeping people connected while people couldn't get into the state house and to the 
the you know the the committee rooms and so forth. So I, I will I will say that you know I think that probably this last session showed us that um, Marylanders have never been more connected and more disconnected from their state government than ever. And, and here's and here's what I mean by that, Mike. Um, for years, I have been talking about doing things like streaming voting sessions, you know, all of the committee hearings and, you know, all of these things that like, like we never used to have access, but, you know, we, we now have access to live video of floor sessions, which, you know, we never had. And if you remember, it wasn't that long ago that we were being told it couldn't be done. And, and, now, it, and now it is being done. And so there is more access to more hours of of, of full frontal policy discussion in Maryland than anyone could ever consume if, if you wanted to consume at all. Um, that being said, there is a real value to being there. And one of the things that I think a lot of us struggled with, whether it's people who do the job that you do or lobbyists or me, um, is, is the, the inability to sort of have those one-on-one -on -one moments, catching people in the hall, walking with someone from the floor of the Senate to the Senate office building, for you know an eight minute quick conversation about something that something that you're working on the uh you know it's those you know, bumping into people in you know in the corridor between the two chambers i mean those those things are are have real value and i think that we saw how much value they have um it is you know zoom is not the next best thing to being there but there is a value to it um i i think that probably one of the things that i really um, I really enjoyed and I hope sticks around is sort of how the pandemic um, pushed the House and the Senate to do a lot more work earlier, um, even though they were doing it remotely. Um, the, the DLS people will probably come and burn my house down because I realize that that makes a ton of work for them um, as they're <laughs> trying as they're trying to crank through those bills. And, and, and I understand that. But, you know, but in a 90 day session, like, I mean, the, you and I both know that there's that there's that that sort of that lull period of a couple of weeks where like hearings are coming in in dribs and drabs and the Senate probably gets the first bill across the, across to the house, you know, in, in a couple of days. Um, but really, you know, like the bulk of the work is not quite getting done yet. And, and I thought that that was a really good thing that came out of the pandemic was we did see more work getting done sooner. What does it look like going back? I mean, I think that really is going to be determined by COVID, right? I mean, the, the, the the current state of variants, the the future state of variants, uh, yeah. vaccinations. Do we need boosters? What's that going to look like? Um, you know, the I will tell you right now, looking at the numbers. You know, the numbers the last six weeks or so. The really, the numbers have been trending up in Maryland since June twenty sixth, and in August we were worse. We were worse this August than we were last August, and that's even counting the vaccine. I, I think if anybody tells you they know what January is going to look like in terms of the pandemic, you know, they, they are probably selling you something. Um, we, we just can't know. And so I, I hope we're back in person. Uh, I love being at the state house. I was there. I made a commitment to be there every day when the house or the Senate was, was, you know, in, in session on the floor physically. Um, I, there were a lot of us who were there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I just, uh, you know, I, and I hope we get back to something that looks more recognizable um, than pandemic, tw uh, pandemic 2021 and the end of the 2020 session. But I, but look, I just, I don't know. That, that, that's all fair. And I think, I think it, it probably should go without saying that we all hope that the situation on the ground 
affords us the chance to be back in person, not just because we want that to return, but it also means things are safer and more stable for all of our neighbors and friends across the state. So we have our fingers crossed that things will head in a positive direction for a long list of reasons among them so that the policy process is more public friendly, user friendly, journalist friendly, advocate friendly, and legislator friendly. So all of the above, check all those boxes, please. I think one of the things that we should, because we talked about COVID, that it, as we're as we're we are recording this today, we on Thursday they added 21 new deaths um, and pushed Maryland above the 10,000 death threshold, which was, to be honest with you, when I looked at it in April, I thought if we got to 10,000 by the end of the year, like that, you know, like that was how we were kind of trending, and in the last month we really had like that really has turned. Um, I think that September like, will likely see more deaths than we saw in August after trending down for a while. And I, and I, and, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's probably a good point to stop and take a moment to think about the fact that, you know, 10,000 Marylanders, you know, have died because of, because of this pandemic, you know, that's the, that those are real people. Those are mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and, and, you know, children, you know, and, and not just numbers. And, and, and so, you know, it's, it, this continue, it was a difficult year and it continues to be a difficult year. For sure. And, you know, regardless of, of how the general assembly plans to meet, we we're pretty confident there's going to be a 2022 legislative session. And there are very important issues, namely COVID and, you know, how we continue to respond to this pandemic, both in terms of, you know, the health of Marylanders and then also economically making sure that our businesses are able to, to continue and thrive and making sure that people have the benefits they need if maybe they lost their job. So that's a pressing issue. We also know, Brian, we're dealing with redistricting. We know that cannabis is probably going to be a big issue in the next session. So there are really important issues moving forward, and that's just a handful. But I, I, I also think, Brian, we're interested, and we've talked a lot about the pandemic and, and maybe some of these things that you talked about earlier are here to stay. You talked about streaming voting sessions. I mean, now that people know that they can do that, I think it's hard to put that back in the bottle. What I'm interested in is virtual testimony. And say what you will, I do think there's a ton of value being there in person. But we all have to admit that, you know, virtual testimony, the ability to testify via Zoom, it let a lot of people who normally couldn't be down here have a voice. And if you live far away from Annapolis and you want to come testify on a bill, we all know that just because the hearing starts at 1 p.m. doesn't mean you're going to testify at 1 p.m. You could wait until six, seven, eight o'clock at night. So the ability to not have to come to Annapolis, to not have to sit in the House or the Senate all day long and wait to testify, it really did provide, I think, some more perspectives that normally wouldn't be seen. And I wonder how they move forward. I think it's hard to put that back in the bottle, too. I wonder how they're going to walk that line between wanting people to be in person and being there and looking them in the eye, but also understanding that there is a value to having these diverse perspectives that maybe wouldn't be there unless you had a virtual option. Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I think the concern that I have about the way that the, the state has, the, the legislature has done virtual testimony um, in a lot of ways, because I think it was new, it was very limited. And they limited the number of people who um, who could testify in a way that that we don't limit people who show up in person. Um, and, and I mean, if you think about like, you know, for example, um, gun day, 
in the House and the Senate. I mean, how, you know, how many of those how many of those days have gone, you know, starting very early and going you know, very early into the next morning? And so, you know, I'd like to see maybe that expanded a little bit. I'll tell you what else I'd like to see. I'd like to see the committees get much more comfortable um, about things like making public um, the written testimony um, that that's submitted to committees on bills, which typically doesn't get doesn't get released publicly until it's it's almost meaningless. But I think there's a transparency issue for the public being able to see the folks who are not necessarily testifying in person or virtually, but who are very definitely bending the ears of lawmakers on policy and legislation um, in the written form. And there is zero reason, I believe, there is zero reason, um, there's zero policy uh, justification for not posting those things online as they are being submitted. They are, all of these things are being submitted electronically the the technology exists to put these things online almost immediately um and and so bill you know virtual bill folders should be a thing you should not have to drive from from cumberland or or from chrisfield to annapolis to try and get a try and get somebody to let you look at a bill folder with written testimony on it on you know on some bill that you that you care about you should be able to access that stuff online um i'd love to see i'd love to see that and and the the live streaming of voting sessions for all of the talk about how bad that would be it really didn't cause our democracy to fall at all did it so I, I would love to see them continue I would love to see them continue that because we I think we all know that that's where a lot of the policy debate and the discussion and the 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 final forms of legislation are really getting hammered out before they get to the floor um, and I think that those are those can be really important things for people to see if they have the desire to see them. Brian, plant your flag, man. It's I, I mean, I, guess, I, I, I will say in Mako's defense, we're we're a believer in that kind of transparency. Not that this is the solution to have each individual actor do their part, but we definitely do. By the by, the day that we're testifying on a bill, our written testimony is on our website. We we let the world see all that stuff, and I I don't mind doing that. But um, yeah, your your argument that that this stuff should be part of the public domain, um, I, I I get the pitch for it for sure. Well, think about think about the uh, the, the world that we lived in prior to um, prior to COVID, and I can remember when the legislature was dealing with the uh, liability bill regarding um, uh, dog bites, and <laughs> right you know right right before they I, and I'm talking about the final fight of the dog bites, not the the six fights that we had before that. Um, you know, I, I remember at one point the bill being hashed out in committee and, and, you know, during a voting session, and I was one of a handful of reporters sitting in the room live tweeting the discussion, and all of the, all of the advocates and, you know, all of the people who cared about the bill on both sides of the bill were afraid to come into the committee room for what is a very public meeting. It, it, for any other member of the public, you can come in. But but the the tradition, real or imagined, is is that advocates who show up and sit inside bill sessions will end up watching watching their bills get killed because they showed up to watch the sausage be made. And so it was this weird thing where all of them were sitting outside and texting me, but watching my live stream, but watching the blow by blow on my live stream because that was the only way they could get it. And I thought that's you know that's really sad that they are six feet outside the room that, and, and having to like have me filter it for them. Yeah, I think we've all been there. And 
it does get a little bit uncomfortable sometimes and it shouldn't. And hopefully that that is not the case moving forward. But but I do think that it's going to be hard for them to try and say, we, we're not going to do that anymore. We're not going to post the testimony and we're not going to allow for, for virtual testimony. There's got to be a middle ground there. And I, I'm hopeful that they'll find it. Brian, this has been a fantastic conversation. We've covered a lot of ground. We talked about a few of maybe the big ticket items that are going to be on the agenda. Any insight from you on stuff that people should be watching, stuff that you think is going to take up you know, a lot of headlines in the, in the 2022 session? Yeah, look, I think that you touched on a lot of the big ones. And I, and I still think that like, the pandemic is going to drive a lot of this. You know, I, I think we're going to see a lot of uh, probably some legislation or at least some attempts to try to deal in legislation with some of the post-pandemic, you know, the, the, the pandemic stuff that's shaking out like, uh, like renters, you know, like, like renters and evictions and, um, and, and look, maybe even some of, the, uh, some of the school board and vaccination issues that we're starting to see develop. So I, I, I think the pandemic and redistricting and some of the politics around the coming election are really going to drive, um, drive what we see this year. So, Brian, we, we tend to, to speak to our listeners, and we obviously have a bit of a filter, and we're focusing on issues that affect county governments. But what are you licking your chops for? I mean, do you think, like, the cannabis debate is going to be the lively topic for this session that, that you're looking forward to covering and writing about and, and having this interaction with your readers and followers? Do you think that's the hot one or something else that we're missing? You no, know, I think I think cannabis is going to be a, a fabulous public policy debate. Um, it'll be interesting to see what lessons the legislature has learned from putting gaming into the Constitution, which I think you could argue has probably made it very hard to uh, to to adapt state policy to an ever evolving industry. Um, and, and I think that that's probably going to be true of cannabis. And and so, what lessons do we learn from that? Um, I think it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out in terms of equity, equity and inclusion, because those are all, those are also very big issues, issues related to um, criminal justice and expungements. I mean, cannabis is going to touch so much public policy. Um, it, it's hard to imagine um, a, a place where it won't kind of work its way in. I, I think that's going to be a big one. And, and, and look, I think, you know, Mike, you know, as well as I do in an election year, I mean, they really try to do as little controversial stuff as possible, um, especially heading into the fact that the, the, the primaries are in June. So, you know, like I, I'm not expecting a tremendous amount of controversial stuff like we would have seen maybe in year one and year two. But I, I still think that there's a lot of real interesting public policy with meat on the bones and, and maybe even some discussion on how the state and the counties um, find ways to spend um, some of these pandemic dollars that are still hanging around. All fair. I agree. Brian Sears, this was a, a great conversation. How do people follow you on social media, Brian? How do they read what you're writing, that, that really good work that you do? So uh, the, the, the Daily Record website, thedailyrecord.com. Um, you can find me on Facebook, Facebook forward slash BP Sears. Uh, Twitter is the same way, twitter.com forward slash BP Sears. Um, I've, I've made it about as, I think, probably about as easy uh, to, to find me uh, as I possibly can, uh, besides coming over to your house and, and, and clicking the buttons for you. If you're old school and you're using your Google machine, it's Brian with a Y, right? So you it use is. the initials, but Brian with a Y, if you're just trying to find this guy, that's the best way, right? It's, it certainly is Brian with a Y. Thank, thank my mom for that. <laughs> all right. Well, we will leave it there today. And if you are interested in getting all of the latest updates from the podcast, 
You can follow along on social media and subscribe. We're available on Twitter, Facebook, and then of course, the Conduit Street blog. But for Brian Sears, government reporter from The Daily Record, and for Michael Sanderson, this is Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon.